Hey everybody, what's up? It's Chase. Welcome to another episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show here on Creative Live. You know, the show where I sit down with amazing humans and today's amazing human is Lovey Ajayi Jones. If you don't know Lovey's work, you're in for a treat. And if you do know her work, then this is going to be a fun ride because Lovey is on fire. Now, I met Lovey originally on stage. We were both on a panel with Sir Richard Branson talking about entrepreneurship and carving your way in the world. And we have stayed close ever since. And she has just, uh, I think this is her second time on the podcast. She has just released a new book and we talk a lot about that. If you're not familiar with Lovey, I'm going to give you a little bit of backstory here. New York Times bestseller of a book called I'm Judging You. And now her new book, which comes out this week called professional troublemaker, which ad- adequately describes uh, Lovey and a bunch of you out there. So I, I, I know that that's going to resonate. Um, in addition to her work as a writer, she thrives. I've seen her on stages all over the place. She's got an amazing TED talk. She lives at the intersection of comedy, justice, and again, that professional troublemaking. Um, today's episode is an absolute doozy. We do talk a little bit about her book, about her philosophies on life, entrepreneurship, building an audience, and most importantly, carving your own way in the world. So I'm going to get out of the way and we're going to turn it over to Levy Ajayi Jones. Go Levy. You know something? Maya Angelou said it better than anyone I've ever heard. She said, creativity is an infinite resource. The more you use, the more you have. And that rings so true to me, which is why I wrote a book to address all of the experiences that I've had with creativity, or rather the most important ones that I think can contribute very meaningfully to your life. That's right. It's a book. It's called Creative Calling, and I would love to hear what you think. Um, If you haven't heard of it, then you've been living under a rock because I've been talking about it for one year now. It hit the national bestsellers list as soon as it came out the very first week, and I believe that it can help you improve your career, your hobby, and most importantly, your life. If you are unfamiliar with the book, it's available anywhere books are sold. Of course, all the big box stores, but if you can get it from an independent, that would mean a lot to me. And uh, so I'm going to get out of the way and get to the episode, but want to say thanks and don't forget to check out Creative Call. Lovey Ajayi Jones, welcome to the show. So happy to have you back. Chase, so good to be in conversation with you. I was like, Chase wants me back. I'm there. I think you set the record for the guest with the shortest amount of time between two episodes. And you, the show has been is like 11 or maybe 12 years old. And we had you last year and you just lit the stage up. So couldn't wait to have you back. Of course, we're celebrating your new book, which comes out this week. Uh, congratulations on all that stuff. How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. I'm feeling excited because I know this book is amazing and I'm just like excited to see what it does for people. It's uh, I, I was shared this with you just before we uh, started recording that I follow you very closely and you, you it's sort of like you're watching a, a tidal wave coming into the beach <laughs> and I'm just seeing it build and seeing it build and it's been so fun. You've been really engaging uh, around with your fans and followers uh, on all your different channels around the new book and that's one of the things I want to do today but for the handful of people who happen to have been living under a rock and yes. aren't familiar with your work. I'm wondering if you can take us back, give us a little background. So who you are, what your roots are, and then we'll touch on uh, the last book, which is incredible. I'm judging you. Uh, and that was, I think, about when we uh, originally connected, I think, via yeah. Sir Richard Branson. We, should, we can go down uh-huh. that tangent a little bit later, share uh-huh. the stage together. But go back to the beginning and uh, paint a picture for those of us who may be new to your work. Yes. Uh, my name is Lovey, and I am a writer, a speaker, a professional troublemaker, and a lover of using her words to shift people's hearts and minds. I was born and raised in Nigeria. I moved to the United States when I was nine. Nobody told me. I thought we were going on vacation. So when I got <laughs> enrolled in school, I was like, oh, so we're staying here. Okay. All right. Y'all could have let me know, but it's cool. Fine. You don't consult the baby. Um, I thought I was going to be a doctor growing up. I really wanted to help people. And I was like, I'm going to be a doctor. And people told me I was going to be a doctor. And they affirmed that in me. And I went to college and took Chemistry 101. And Chemistry 101 told me, you will not be a doctor. No, you don't even like hospitals. I got the first and last D of my academic career. And you know how people typically tell you never quit? No, no, sometimes you should quit. Because sometimes some failures 
are actually to direct you to what you're supposed to do. That semester I started blogging and I hadn't, I haven't stopped. That was 18 years ago. Um, when I graduated with my degree in psychology, I ended up also falling in love with marketing. So I was a marketing coordinator for a nonprofit uh, by day, by night, a struggling blogger. I got laid off my job April 2010 because I was a trash employee. Let's be clear. <laughs> I was a trash employee because I was at work writing on my blog. I was at work not really producing in the way I wanted to because really I wanted to be a writer but was afraid of all the things that came with it. So I didn't call myself a writer. I thought my blog was a hobby. Uh, but when I got laid off, it was really the universe being like, listen, you're stubborn. You're not listening to me. I'm going to do this thing. So push you out the way so you can go face this thing you're supposed to do. And my blog took on a life of its own. People started reading it. It started winning awards. And I got to the point where I couldn't deny that I was a writer. I couldn't deny that my gift was to use my words to make people think critically, to make them feel joyful, and to compel them to take action that leaves this world better than they found it. But once I did that, everything changed. Got my book deal, my first book deal in 2015. That book came out September 2016. I'm judging you, the Do Better Manual. And it was a manual on how we are all ridiculous and why we all got to do better. Uh, and that book changed my life. Um, it allowed me to retire my mom, which was a lifelong dream. The next year, I did a TED Talk that went viral, getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. That also changed my life because it had people from all over the world saying what impact my words made on them, what big action it made them take. Um, and I started realizing that I really want to show people what it's like when you insist on doing the things that scare you and doing the things that feel bigger than you and all the rewards that come from it. And ever since that TED Talk, that's been my goal when I didn't realize it was my goal. So now here I am. I am on a mission to empower one million people to fight their fear, to insist on doing what feels right for the greater good, whether it's hard or not. Because what happens when a million people decide to commit to a life that feels audacious, that is audacious? Because my testimony is that my journey, this Cliff Notes version of my story, really at the core of it is of a woman, a girl who always did the things that were necessary, even when they were scary. And um, I've won because of it. And that brings us to now and why I wrote professional troublemaker, the fear fighter manual, that concept sat on my shoulders, convicted me. And I felt like this is what my second book needs to be about. And that's why I'm here. What an amazing arc. So, um, there's so much to unpack in there of what you just <laughs> said. So I want to, yeah. but I, I want to start out rather than the, the, the tactics and the blocking and tackling, I want to start out with feelings because at some point along that arc you decided it sounds like or the universe pushed you and you can you can explain which or both or whatever but at some point you started to follow the thing that was in your heart as opposed yeah. to the thing that was on paper or the things yes. that all of the people around you wanted for this one precious life for you and you you shifted yeah. out of their universe into your own and i'm sure that was yes um i'm sure if it's anything like everyone else who i've ever talked to on this subject it's hard but i want to know what it felt like what you did and how it contributed to where you are right now mm. what it felt what it like felt in your like. heart when you when you get out of the sort of like up on the plane, you're bouncing planes, you're bouncing around and then you just like drop into a groove. And it, it, that's the way that I think about it. But I want to know what it felt like when you started doing the, because that's the feeling that so many of us are looking for, right? We, yeah. and it feels like, does it feel like purpose? Does it feel like, you know, I don't want to put too many words in your mouth, but from, from your perspective, walk me through that sort of emotional, um, landscape and yeah. then how, how it actually contributed to where you are right now when you shifted gears. What it felt like was uneasy, was like a, a lack of anchor in that 
the thing that you thought you were going to do for your whole life, when you realize that's actually not what I'm supposed to do, it's uneasy because you're like, well, I'm, I'm about to disappoint a few people. And you know that viscerally. You're like, I'm about to do something that a lot of people are going to disagree with. So how am I going to handle that? So there was a moment where I actually, when I realized I wasn't a doctor, I think I compartmentalized it for a hot second. I said, you know what? I'm still going to get my degree in psychology. The doctor dream is dead. And I actually didn't tell my mom that I dropped my, my pre-med major. She found out at graduation. I don't oh. recommend that for everybody. Yeah, she found out at graduation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She found out because I realized very early, and I didn't realize I did until I looked back. I realized very early that my best decisions, the best decisions for me are not council decisions. They're not group decisions that require somebody else's input. So I knew I didn't want to receive anybody's input. So I actually didn't seek it. Once I knew what I wanted to do, I didn't necessarily look for other people's approval in it because I knew they would disagree. Because oftentimes, if your vision for yourself is different from what everybody sees, you don't want to have to sit there convincing them. And when you do, when they still tell you, we don't see it for you, all it does is add doubt to your dream. All it does is add like it puts water, pours water, not gas on your on your fire. And you want somebody to pour gas on it. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to keep it to myself and go. I'm just going to move. And in the process of me moving, in me not also asking for people's feedback, I also wasn't receiving people's um, people's questions. So I had to realize that, okay, this pivoting, this life where I removed myself from somebody else's world and put myself in mine, all I did was I just honored myself by doing what I felt like doing without doubting it and questioning it and not doing it. So a lot of times, you know, we'll have a dream, we'll have a plan and we'll be like, I shouldn't do that. That sounds crazy. I just was like, it sounds crazy, but I'm still going to do it. I didn't have a plan. I didn't have a strategy. I wasn't like, I am now figuring it all out for myself. I actually battled with myself at certain points where I said, you know what? Maybe you shouldn't do this. Maybe this writing thing is actually not real. Maybe you should quit this blog. And Chase, every single time I would want to quit my blog, I would get a note from somebody. And I remember two of them in particular. One was a woman who emailed me and said, I just wanted to send you this note because I was laughing when I read your blog because, and that was significant because I was sitting in the waiting room as my mom got chemotherapy. So I just want to say thank you for making me smile in this moment that's really tough for me. And I was like, fine, God. Okay, universe. (laughs) Dang. I was just trying to quit, but you won't let me. So even the times when I started getting into my own way, I always got something that stopped me that was like, no, pay attention, pay attention. I need you to stop, give this thing, honor it. But it wasn't until 2012 that I actually really started honoring that writer piece of it all because I still didn't call myself a writer. How important, how important was that, was that uh, trade that was that movement in your psychology and your experience? How important? Yeah, I called myself a blogger. I just be like, yeah, I have a blog. I blog sometimes. I blog. I didn't call myself a writer because I was afraid of all the things that came with that title. I was like, okay, if I call myself a writer, does that mean I'm like comparing myself to like Toni Morrison? Does that mean I have to write novels? I was somebody who was writing her thoughts and her feelings about the world, about just random shenanigans, about race, about just anything I felt like. I didn't see the version of writer that was me. So I was afraid of what it meant to take on that title. In 2012, when I got credentialed to do press coverage at the Academy Awards, I'm standing on the red carpet and backstage with BBC, Entertainment Weekly, all these multi-million dollar outlets, and here I am, it's awesomely lovey. And, and I was like, oh snap, my words got me in this room. I'm a writer. The moment I made that shift, it was interesting because I'm not sure if I did anything different intentionally, but the moment I started calling myself a writer and when somebody asked me, how do we credit you in this thing? Are you a writer? The first time I said, I'm a writer, I was like, oh snap, I guess I'm this now. All the things that I was afraid of, how would I make money? You know, does this mean I have to change the way I show up? All of those things got addressed. Like I started getting offers to do columns in magazines. My blog took off even more. I was doing brand ambassadorships. 
And it was like the universe was like, I was waiting for you. I was just waiting for you to own this thing so I can give you what I had for you. And yeah. Wow. Follow on question, because this is absolute fire. This is, this is, there's so many people listening and watching right now for whom this shift, that click, that recognition, I might even call it uh, a reconciliation of identity, because when you call yourself something, you start to label yourself as that thing. There's like you said, time to pair it back to you. There's a, you know, you, there's a discomfort (laughs) when you start using that word. But if you can sort of align with that, the experience that I have and what I heard from you and so many others on the show is that your life just accelerates. And so adopting this identity that is that at first fearful, I'm, I'm the follow-up question is, can you tell the people how, how Mm. did you do that? Was it, again, was it, uh, was, did you program your mind? Were you casual about it? Was it the world's label that just hit you enough that you finally allowed it to stick? Because mm-hmm. there's so many people. This is such a hurdle for so many people. Yeah. I'm dying to get your experiential wisdom. I'm a very practical, pragmatic person. That's part of why I struggled so long for calling myself a writer. Because I was like, ah, writer just feels like pie in the sky. I need to just stay in marketing or go get my degree in psychology, like my my master's and just do this thing that has a path. That pragmatism sometimes stunts us because it stops us from leaving the ground. We're so grounded that we're rooted into the earth. And when we're asked to fly, we don't even fly. We don't levitate because we're still so grounded. And what shifted in me, one, if you use your pragmatism in these moments, you can actually you can either weaponize it or you can use it to affirm what you're doing. At that point, I had been writing outside of the classroom in a way where I was not required to write. Nobody was like saying you have to write for nine years, nine years in 2012. On top of that, sometimes people will call me a writer. On top of that, I started seeing myself in the rooms where other writers were in, other people whose words got them in that room. I was in the room with them. I actually, at that point, was arguing against logic to not call myself a writer. I was arguing against what made sense, what was rational. Why would I not call myself a writer? Am I writing every day? Do I sleep and think about words and wake up and write down paragraphs in 15 minutes? Yes. So I had to finally be like, you know what? For you not to call yourself a writer, you're actually arguing against what makes sense. So for my pragmatic people out there, figure out what you're actually arguing against. If a dream feels so big, we talk about dreams and it feels like this, like, again, pie in the sky thing. We think like, oh, TED Talk terms, that's cute. No, if there's something that you want to do that you wake up thinking about, that you cannot stop thinking about, that sits on your shoulders and shoulders and for you not to do it, you're arguing against what actually makes sense. Because there's something that's clearly there. If you can't stop thinking about it, then you know what? Honor it. Give it some room. And then if it doesn't go well, that's a different story. But start with the fact that you're not arguing against logic. Lasers. <laughs> wow. Lasers. Um, I'm going to share a personal story. Yes. Um, our first meeting, I don't remember what city it was in. Maybe it was in San Francisco. San Francisco. Se- Seattle or San Francisco? San Francisco. Okay. It was in San Francisco. And we were on a panel together. And with Sir Richard Branson and a couple of other dashing spirits that um, I think are less relevant to the story. But I remember the the soulful conviction with which you said every word on that stage. Mm -hmm. It was captivating. It was, you know, what I like to think is you can feel people who are doing the thing that they're supposed to be doing. And I don't know, but we don't need to talk about what, whether it's energy or vibe or like whatever it is. But I think that, you know, I'm not, I wouldn't be alone in saying this. And was there some, was there anything that happened between this declaration of calling yourself a writer and that moment when we were on stage where you were just spitting fire and owning the stage basically? Is there, was there, was, was that just momentum? Was, was there, was there some psychology that you were doing on your, on your brain? Was there a, 
you know, a, was there a routine? Was it just a muscle that you'd built because it was contagious? It was light and vibrant and thoughtful and also aware and critical and intelligent and where, where, you know, what were some of the things, the practices that maybe got you from the, the lovey that I first experienced from the lovey that said, okay, fine, I'm a writer. I'm here backstage at the, at the uh, Academy Awards or Grammys, or I forget what you said, but Academy, it, Awards. T- t- Academy Awards, that little show. Um, <laughs> what was there a series of behaviors that you practiced besides writing or was it just writing? Just paint a picture for us because there's so many people. Yeah. Now we've tipped the people who are listening and watching into like, okay, cool. Levy's giving me some courage. I'm gonna call myself a writer. And then the next thing they wake up in the morning is like, okay, I did that. Now what? So help us fill in your experience from that decision to, you can pick any time, any moment in time. I'm just picking the one that I can personally validate because I shared that stage with you. Yeah. Um, when I, when I said I was a writer, there was something that shifted in me that realized that I had not been honoring my gift as I should have been. I had spent so much time saying I wasn't that, that I didn't consider my gift a gift. And the things about gifts is we think we are supposed to have earned it. It's a gift because you didn't earn it. You didn't necessarily do much to get this gift. Now you can hone it, right? You can hone the gift. So what I happened, what happened when I said I'm a writer is I started honing it. I actually started being intentional about the fact that I was a writer. I said, you know what? This is not just the cute blog. This is just not the hobby. Do this thing intentionally. This is your work. This is your purpose. So instead of like procrastinating like you typically would do, instead of being like, "Mm, I don't know, I'm not going to say anything about that thing. I actually started writing with intention. And I was like, this is my job. This is my purpose. And that also led to me doing a lot of speaking because... I ended up, because of my writing, I'd be invited to come speak at conferences because of my background in marketing and communications. I used to speak. So it was like a it was like a perfect storm of, oh my God, I'm a writer. Okay, my words that I'm putting on paper, bring it on a stage. And I just let it be. I didn't, I stopped doubting it. You know, I stopped giving the energy to the fact that this is just a hobby. And I focused it on, I'm actually supposed to be here. I'm supposed to be doing this. I belong here. And I started walking with more confidence in it. And that changed so much because a lot of this is also who I've been. And I didn't realize it. One thing I always realized is like past me always leaves breadcrumbs for new me and present me, even when I don't realize it. You know, what are some, what are some examples? Keep going. Growing up in Nigeria, uh, and be, I've always been opinionated. I'm talking, I was a four-year-old girl who would get in trouble for her mouth, not because she was insulting people necessarily, but because she would like challenge people. So if I got in trouble, after I received whatever punishment, I would go up to my mother and say, I feel like you owe me an apology because that wasn't fair. You didn't take my consideration. You didn't take my perspective in consideration. I have notes that I wrote my mom and I think she kept them. Every single time I get in trouble, couple of hours later, she would get a note on her like nightstand explaining my perspective, talking about why I felt it was unfair and f- talking about how I felt I was cheated. That me is what I'm doing right now when I'm talking about the world, when I'm like, hey, guys, this is what's happening that I don't like, that I don't think is cool. Here's how I think we should fix it. So I've always been the person that used her words. I just didn't know I was supposed to stand in that. So I find that if we actually stop doubting ourselves early enough, we will save ourselves a lot of trouble. Imagine if somebody's like, you're always writing stuff. Maybe maybe you should be a writer. Imagine if I remembered four-year-old me when I was 22 and was like, you've been writing, you've been using your words to like, on a real intentional way for a long time, all your life. So stopping the doubt propelled me forward because I've now moved the energy of the doubt into focus and practice because no matter what it is, our gift is if we're not honing it, if we're not practicing it, we would not get better at it. So the fact that I kept on writing and kept on speaking, by the time I met you, you saw 
version 4.0. And the me that's in front of you today is like version 8.0. So. Well, I love that idea of consistent growth and all the tools and work and awareness that uh, that goes into it. I think there's something so practical that I could extract, which is basically in order to be the noun, you have to do the verb. There are so many people out there who are like would consider themselves a filmmaker. And my question back to them would be great. Show me the films that you're making. And for the th there's a gap between the people who are feeling fulfilled. And this is in my experience of surveying and being around them and advising and learning from them is that the, the, there's a gap and that gap is wider if you're calling yourself one thing and you're not doing it. And the, the, the yes. gap is dramatically reduced for if you call yourself a writer, you call yourself fill in the blank, whatever it is, whoever's listening aspires to be, do, or become. If you're doing that thing, then there's no, there's no fiction. There's only fiction if you're not doing the thing, but calling yourself something and yes. you are living proof of, uh, of your, your path. So, Thank you for sharing that. I want to uh, shift directions a little bit because last time you were on the show, we talked a lot about your book, I'm Judging You, and its success um, and it how it has just continued to sell and um, carve out its space in popular culture. Um, but I want to focus the next the next bit on your new book, which is over yes. your shoulder. If you're listening to this, you can't see it, but you got, it's, it is a beautiful cover, bright red, professional troublemaker. And I'm, I'm holding up to the book on my, uh, on my, my <laughs> phone here. I've been reading it on my phone because it's not out yet while we're recording this. It's right now, if you're listening to this, that it is out in the world because we're dropping this in your pub week. So, yes. uh, you, you, and as you know, you, if you listeners out there, it is a huge support for authors to buy their book, especially pre-launch or the week of it coming out. So let's double down and do what we can to help Lovey. Um, but I want to go to it in the intro. I think there's um, it's it's very useful because you tell us what a professional troublemaker is not, and then you end with what a troublemaker is. And I'm hoping you can help us here on the show um, in your own words, rather than me reading your book, describe a professional troublemaker. First, I actually have to say, Chase, that I can say with full confidence that this book is the best thing I've ever done. Like professionally, it is the best thing I've ever written. It is the thing I'm most proud of professionally yet. And it's because that concept of a professional troublemaker, remember past me? and the breadcrumbs, the first words of my TED talk is I'm a professional troublemaker. My job is to critique systems and the things that are happening that are not okay. And I think that's the core. A professional troublemaker is somebody who is committed to disrupting the world for the greater good, who is committed to walking in rooms and saying, because I'm in it, I will be proud of what comes out of this room. It is somebody who is saying, I will be audacious no matter if the world is telling me I don't deserve to be. A professional troublemaker is not just a contrarian. It's not a troll. It's not a hater. They're trailblazers. They're truth tellers. They are change makers. They're activists. They're people who are pursuing a life that feels bigger than they could ever think. They're people who are, you know, doing their best and making sure that their friends are doing their best. They're people who just want to exist in this world and when they leave, they know they've done all that they could have done. Mm. You do it with grace. Uh, is that a, is, is that That's a, uh, yeah, but I, I, you bring humor in a time where the conversation or the topic at hand is cutting and critical and um, certainly required, especially uh, if it's going against the status quo. Is that your unique gift? Is that, am I reading into it? Or how do you approach these topics that are so socially relevant and important, important and complex? How do you, how do you uh, approach it with grace and vigor and humor, in some case, humor around some of the hardest things we could find to talk yeah. about in our culture? Humor is the great equalizer. If you can make people laugh, you will find common ground. 
And for me, it's just something I naturally infuse in my personality. I am somebody who does not take herself too seriously, even as she takes the world very seriously. I am somebody who is like, you know what, there's always something that we can point out that's absurd. And humor at its core is just pointing out absurdities. And the world is strange. So there's no la- there's no shortage of absurd things happening. So humor is a major part of how I write, how I put forth ideas and how I connect with people, how I show up. Is that, you, is that a, uh, I don't want to use the word, well, I use the word tool. Is that a tool that you have chosen as your path or did that, was that something that you looked inside and said, you know what I got? I got this humorous side and I have this gift. So did you go out and cultivate that gift or was it something inside that you pointed a flashlight at and said, ah, this is my tool? Pointed a flashlight at it. I didn't go out looking for humor because funny enough, when I started blogging, I actually didn't think I was funny. I mean, me and my friends are goofy. Like we make fun of each other just for like sport because that's how we do. And, but when I started writing and blogging, it wasn't with the intention of being funny. And I actually don't even set out to be funny necessarily. I usually, I'm just like, just say what you're thinking. And what I'm thinking happens to be funny to people. Because when I'm usually writing, I'm writing with a straight face, Chase. Like I'm typing or writing with a completely straight face. And people are like, that's hilarious. I'm like, really? What's funny when I was writing this book, I actually was like, man, this book feels really serious. And then my agent, when she was reading the first draft, she was like, yo, I'm cracking up. And I was like, wow, there was still humor in it. I'm, I'm glad to hear it. So it's just me, again, honoring just what feels natural. And the humor just comes out. And I love it. I'd like to go to uh, another piece in the book where troublemaking meets fear. Because to mm-hmm. say people right now who are watching and listening uh, are bound up with fear would be an understatement. I think so many in our culture, myself on occasion included, it's a muscle that I've worked really hard to um, strengthen so that I do not uh, feel that negative gravity. But fear is a thing that confronts us all. And in Professional Troublemaker, you share through lessons from your grandmother in part how one plays through that fear. And I can, I'm hoping you can um, talk about that. So fear was a topic that I really wanted to tackle because I realized what happened for me when I stopped moving and stopped using fear as a first decision factor. Like my life transformed in 2015, which was a year that I turned 30. When I decided, I actually made it a point that year to tell myself, this is going to be a year where you are going to not be afraid of everything. And if you are afraid, you're still going to do it. Because again, remember, I was afraid of calling myself a writer for years. And all the things that was attached to it and all that fear. And the moment I was like, I'm still afraid, but I'm still going to do it, transformed my life. So when I turned 30 and I like embarked on this year of fear fighting, I went to seven countries solo. I got my book deal. I met my now husband because I grabbed his beard at a party. Okay, like completely out of my usual style. That year, those habits changed everything. Because from that year, that book came out, hit the times list. I retired my mom. I met this amazing man who I'm now married to. My career shifted in such a way that I was able to start seeing some of my biggest dreams realized. So that's when I was like, for us to really live in this world, we have to do the things that scare us. And that usually looks like troublemaking. You know, when people think about you making trouble, they're like, ah, there goes a troublemaker because you're usually the person who's challenging something or you're speaking up or you are doing the weird thing nobody thought was possible, like building a million dollar company Troublemaking and fear are very much tied. For you to fight fear in this world, you're gonna make some trouble with yourself, with the people around you, and just with the with comfort, you're gonna make trouble with comfort. So I wanted to write this book and really focus on what happens when we all realize that fearlessness is not just like, I'm not gonna be afraid. Fearlessness means I'm not gonna do less because of fear. And courage can't exist without fear. So how do we do it? So that's what this book really helps focus on. And that's why I really 
my goal is to, my mission and what success looks like for me is if I can help a million people fight their fear because they read this book. Powerful. What about your grandma? There's a great my picture at the front, front half of the book. There's a great picture of uh, you and your grandma locked in eye line together. It's just a, it's a beautiful picture and you can feel the power of it, especially um, as it sure. unfolds cr across the the pages. I can I, I can hold it up. For, yeah, yep. well, let's both there do that. it is. Yep, yep, yep. Uh -huh. So this is I was six years old. It was my grandmother's 60th birthday party. And I walked up to her to tell her something that somebody did to me that I didn't like. And in the middle of this party, she gives me her full attention. Like what I am saying is the most important thing in the world. Like, tell me, what did they do? And it was such a great capture of what it means to be a troublemaker for me. I spent a lot of my life not being told not to be this person. I basically was allowed to be this person. And my grandmother was the troublemaker that I was looking at that I didn't realize I was studying as she walked through the world. This woman was orphaned at the age of 17 and had to start a whole new life. The woman who I knew was strength personified. She allowed herself to be celebrated. She loved hard. She was kind, but she would also tell the truth. And in her life, I know she was afraid of a thousand things, but she never let it stop her from doing these things. And she ended up building a legacy that now involves, includes me. And it's a legacy that I'm proud of. And I looked at her and I was like, that was a troublemaker. And her life was so beautiful how it unfolded. She still had people who loved her deeply. So I'm just like, one of the fears that we have around being a troublemaker, being a fear, like being somebody who exhibits and shows up in a big way is that we're afraid of, we will lose community because of it. We will lose tribes. We will not have love. And I'm like, I am proof of all of that. My grandmother was proof of all of that, that that's not true. You can show up and insist on disrupting a room because you're lovingly challenging it. You can be the person who insists on living in integrity and still thrive. You can be the person who has all the reasons to be marginalized and be on the margins of the world and not be respected in certain rooms. And you can say, you know what, that doesn't belong to me. I will still soar because of it. And my grandmother was the epitome of it. She, this ring that I wear that I've not taken off in seven years was hers. One day she was wearing it and I was like, oh my God, I love your ring. And she literally took it off her hand and gave it to me. And my grandmother passed 10 years ago. And this book is like the perfect tribute. Mar May will be 10 10th anniversary of her passing. This book comes out in March. So I'm just like, it's the best way for me to honor her legacy because now her name will be known and her life will serve as a lesson that can actually help spur other people's lives forward. And for me, that's the greatest honor of my life so far. I love the, the the thread that your grandma provides for the reader through this book is so powerful. And I love how you've got that picture up front. One of the things I also do when I consume um, the words and thoughts and um, the spirits of other people is I look at some structure. You've got a, a, an amazing structure in this book, uh, just for those who don't have a copy in front of them right now. If you don't, you're missing out, go, you know, press a button and buy that. You can, you can buy it right now, yes. where you're, wherever you're sitting, you can buy right this book. Now. <laughs> um, it is a couple of, there's just three sections, be, say, do. Yes. And what I, one of the many things that I took away from that, um, and the one I'd like you to comment on is this, those are, um, there's action in those words. And, if I know anything about, you know, what I've heard you, the stories that you've told us about how to get to where you are, um, what role does, does action play in it? Mm, so much. I organized this book in Be, Say, Do, because the first thing you have to do is like, be right, be right within yourself on what's possible for you, on who you are, on 
how you, you can dream, be right, okay? And then from there, now you got to put some words to that feeling. You got to now say it out loud. Let other people hear it. You know what I mean? Like do things and, and say it so it leaves your head also. We'll think a lot of things. We'll be like, yeah, I wanted to. Oh, I say it out loud and let somebody now also hold you accountable and let it be clear where you stand. And then do. Words don't really matter if your action does not match. So now put a verb on it. Do. Do something. Move different. Build that squad. You know what I mean? And that's key. I think in all of this, it's not just inspire you. It's actually compel you to now move. Like ask for the raise, right? Like have that conversation, you know, just do something in your life that will now allow you to be in a better place. Because I always say like, at the end of it all, I don't think hearing no is a problem. I don't think that's the issue. Regrets for me would be the worst case scenario. If I regretted that I didn't do something, that my inaction, is my inaction something I'm proud of? Is my silence something I'm proud of? And am I letting fear take me out of the best case scenario because I'm afraid of the worst case scenario? So that's why we must do, we must act. There's a uh, thread of trust also. And in fact, there's a chapter here that I was reading called Trust Where You Are. Yeah. What role does that play? Because everything you've talked about is, is very much um, oriented towards moving forward and progress. And um, and sometimes that can create a, some dissonance because if you're not where you want to be, then, you know, that that there's a little internal dissonance. And what role does trust play in your what role did it play in your journey? And how would you? Um, encourage others to think about the role that trust plays in theirs. Yeah, as we are existing in this really tough world, you have to trust as many people as possible. But first, you got to trust yourself. You got to trust your gifts. You got to trust what you're being pushed to do by you, right? If you have this idea that you just can't get out of your head, trust yourself that you're actually supposed to try it, right? When we don't trust ourselves, we will doubt the opportunities we get. We will doubt the promotion we've been offered. We will doubt the great things the people in our lives tell us because we don't trust ourselves. And in the moment where we don't trust ourselves and we also don't trust the people around us, then what are you standing on? So for me, whenever I don't trust myself, I at least trust the people around me. And usually that means moments where I might have imposter syndrome, moments where I might forget or have lose perspective on my gift, going to other people and having them loan you their power in that moment is a great way to handle it. So if you're like, I don't know if I can do this, go call a friend who you know believes in you and have them loan you their power, have them loan you some trust in that moment. It's a big part of my journey, my TED talk which I declined twice, it, I didn't trust myself that I was ready for it. I was afraid of that stage. I didn't think I was gonna go on it and kill. I thought I was gonna bomb. And I called one of my friends who is the closest thing to a coworker to me, Unique Jones Gibson, she's brilliant. And she was just like, what are you afraid of? And I was like, I don't know, like everybody else has already had a coach and everybody else is already prepared. And she says, everybody's not you. Your life has been your preparation. Your experience is your preparation, your credentials and the work that you always do is your preparation. So go forward and do it. So yeah, trust yourself. And then if you don't trust yourself, trust other people who will now loan you trust for yourself. What about people who've been burned? Mm, people who've been burned. Those people who burned them didn't trust themselves and didn't trust them. A lot of things come down to trust. You don't trust the people around you. You will lash out, you will project. So instead of saying, well, I've been burned, so I can't trust anybody else, what about the many times you haven't been burned, right? All humans, we are programmed to take the negative on. We will drill down the negative and instantly forget the positive. So one person can tell you that was trash. You believe that person rather than the 10 people who say that was amazing. Mm. It's how we're created. We have to know when we're doing it, though. 
You got to know when you're doing it. When you get a bad comment on the internet, you'll remember that comment before you remember the 25 amazing ones. So the one person that burns you cannot be the totality of your community. They cannot be the reason why you pull up a titanium wall. So you just got to, it's trial and error. Humans are going to disappoint you. But the one person that disappoints you cannot negate the love and the support and the trust that you receive from everybody else. They cannot. Don't let them. Don't let them. Don't give it up. Nope. To that end, uh, don't give it up. Uh, there's a great chapter in the book called Take No Shit. Take no shit. <laughs> this is what I mean, this thread of, of profound statements, stream of consciousness. I think the New York Times said uh, it it's like very well organized stream of consciousness when referring yes. to your writing. Yes. Um, what do you mean when you say take no shit? Take no shit. We have been tricked into thinking that we have to exist in this world just to be polite to everybody. You know, we've been told it's okay. Don't rock the boat. And what happens when we internalize that is we now think defending ourselves is rocking the boat. We think challenging something that's not okay is rocking the boat. So we think we're supposed to just say yes, yes, yes to everything. I was just talking to Adam Grant, and he puts it really well in that you want disagreeable people. And it's not disagreeable because they're just showing up and messing up what's happening in the room. It's disagreeable in that they lovingly challenge it because they realize it's an obligation. When you take no shit... You put kindness over niceness. Now let's talk about the difference between those two. Right? Yeah. I don't think nice means anything. I think nice is empty. When you ask somebody, Chase, if somebody asks you, how is that person? And they say they're nice. What do you instantly think? You're full of shit. <laughs> full of shit. <laughs> Thank you. If, if the descriptor that somebody uses for somebody is nice, it tells me nothing. Here's what it tells me. It's like, me. The, mo it's it like the plainest me. thing you could say. It's like water. So plain. <laughs> so plain. It's so colorless, odorless. Tells me nothing. It's nothing of note. But we're so obsessed with being nice. When I'm like, kind is what we should be. Being nice is being chipper. Being like, hi, Chase. No, 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 no. I don't need you to be super chipper. But are you kind? Am I saying, Chase, how are you doing today? And actually caring what your answer is. I think the difference between nice and kind is nice is, Chase, it's raining. Kind is, Chase, do you have an umbrella? We need to be kind. And kind is not always in the chipper. Kind is in the who is speaking up for you when you're not in the room. Who is affirming you whether you're hearing them or not? How are you showing up in the world to make this world better? That kind is what I said was really important to me when I wrote, I'm judging you. When I say like we judge each other on the most random things, but how are we being kind to each other? How am I making sure you have food to eat? A roof over your head. Take no shit in this world and don't think that you are just supposed to lay down in the face of things that are happening around you that are not okay. Take no shit by standing up for yourself, standing up for people who don't have the power and privilege to stand up for themselves. Standing up for people who have nothing to do with you. You don't know them. You have nothing to gain by being kind to them. But in this world, you got to learn how to take no shit. Put some, put some boundaries up. Like, without guilt. Don't be afraid of rocking the boat. Rock the boat. The boat is trash. Rock the boat. It's a trash boat. <laughs> I want to read a paragraph that I, I highlighted uh, yes. in advance of our conversation today. We will ruffle feathers. We might be the villains in a few people's stories. We might even blow up a few bridges. But our work is not based on how much we acquiesced to do or how much we acquiesced to the people we know. Our goal is to betray ourselves less. Yes. So be kind, but take no shit. Yes. Makes me want to ask more about self-betrayal and mm. what's what what do you have any internal alarms that go off that you could coach people listening? Because this idea of standing up for yourself, and it's not always in profound or violent or ways that has the spotlight on it, but this idea of the erosion of self is um, the erosion of your 
you know, your moral compass, the erosion of your positive psychology, the erosion of all these things. Like it's, I'm wondering if there are, it's not the, it's not the big ones. Like if someone says something about you that is harmful or hurtful and it, it affects a lot of people and you, it's clear to stand up in those moments. I'm wondering about those small, quiet moments alone in bed where we may be un, so it's like unannounced self-betrayal. I'm wondering if you have some alarm bells or uh, how to think about those quiet moments where we might just say, meh, okay, All right, I don't want to rock the boat. Or I'm okay. This is, yeah. it's, it's small. Let's not make a big deal of it because I only got so much time or room or space in my life for drama or fill in the blank. I'm not afraid. Yeah. And so many people I hear aren't afraid of the big moments. Should you stand up in service of social justice? Yes. But what about the little teeny moments where you're not sure or you yeah. don't? So here's the thing though. For the big moments of self-betrayal to happen, little moments will happen too. Because how do you prepare for the big moments if you're not already handling the smaller moments? How do you speak up about a big issue if you also can't have a conversation? We do compartmentalize in certain ways where we can speak up on social media and then let our family be on ridiculous mode. I think self-betrayal is in tiny moments in you speaking ill about yourself. That's a bit of self-betrayal. You telling yourself that you're not deserving of something that you're getting is self-betrayal. The alarms go off in my head when I keep saying you should have said something or you should have done something. You knew that in that moment. Usually the self-betrayal alarms don't go off until after the fact because I'm like, ah, shoot, I should have handled that better. Or did I use my power in the way I was supposed to? If you're lucky, you will feel it in the moment. You will feel the actual discomfort in the meeting or sitting across from the dinner table as somebody's making an inappropriate joke and you'll, you'll squirm. You know when people squirm in their seats and you, you can see them, you're yeah, like, see it. You're self-betrayal is happening. You know you're supposed to be doing, saying something different. So I think we, we should betray ourselves less by just trusting ourselves less. It takes us back to that. If in that moment you're squirming because you're uncomfortable, then that's your body telling you, I want you to do something. If you're sweating, I want you to do something. If you look up in five years and go, ah, I wish I got that degree, that's a bit of self-betrayal. What made you not pursue it? And here's the thing, though. When we recognize that we've done it, it doesn't mean you beat yourself up more because that's further self-betrayal because all you do is you're just, just going to dig yourself in a hole. Now's the time to recognize it and say, how do I make sure it doesn't happen next time? How do I pick this up earlier so I can actually do something about it faster? Don't beat yourself up even more. You just commit to betraying yourself less. Commit to doing better. That's all we can do. Our past mistakes, been done. Can't erase them. You can't go back to that moment. Don't drive yourself crazy about it. You just insist on charging forward. You make the intention and say, all right, the next time I'm faced with this situation, I would do it different. And I think that moment is when you choose courage. Courage is a moment-by-moment -moment decision to make. It's not about you choose courage and all of a sudden you're courageous for the rest of your life. Everything that we do every day, we have opportunities to choose courage over self-betrayal. We have opportunities to choose being brave over fear. So just commit to it and just say, I'm going to do better. It's hard to find a better way to end a show than by inspiring us to do better to not betray ourselves and to go after our dreams is the way in the way that you have. Um, before we wrap, I, I have to just personally say your latest book is pure genius and it's such a treat to read. And I find myself um, thinking back on moments where I wish I would have read this. I wish it would have been in the world to have been read um, as I made, you know, big and small life decisions. And uh, your grandmother is an amazing figure to weave through the story as a 
I don't know, as a, just a, a bright light. So thank you for writing this book. It needs to be read. If you're listening right now, you don't have a book, uh, uh, Professional Troublemaker by Levy Ajayi Jones, then you're missing out, folks. You are Chase, missing out. <laughs> I got to tell you, that reflection matters a lot to me because I wrote this book basically as a book to myself. I am a forever student. I always want to create work that I need. And I know I needed this book 10 years ago when I was afraid to call myself a writer. I needed this book when I was afraid of the TED Talk. I need this book now. Like when the world shut down during the pandemic, I was like, damn it, I wish this book was already out because I need to read it. So I, what I end up doing in, in the work that I do is really for me that is front facing. And I think that's also allowed my work to connect is I keep honoring myself by creating work that I need. And I know that if I need it, then I, other people will need it. So the fact that you said that, I'm like, yes, you have affirmed exactly my intention for this book. And I already have a story of how it's changed somebody's life. Can you share it? Yes. Um, my editor at Penguin Random House, Meg Leader, when she sent me the first draft for this book, she put in her comments on the side in my chapter four, my Ask for More chapter, she said, this chapter just made me ask my boss for a raise. A few months later, actually, yeah, I didn't even ask her anything else. I just laughed and I was like, yay, that just makes me happy that you had the audacity to ask because you read this. In December, she goes, so you're one of the first people I'm telling this, but your book has changed my life. And I said, how? And she says, I just got promoted to editorial director of Penguin Random House, the Penguin and Penguin Life and Viking Books. She was like, and it's because of your book. I asked my boss and I asked again. And he said, yes. And not only did she get promoted, her assistant is now an editor. And she was like, your book changed my life. So that's before it's you, even out. <laughs> it wasn't even out. I was like, oh my God. I was on the call with my mouth on the floor. And in that moment felt so affirming because I was like, yes, yes. And you I had a one. sample size of one at that moment. There's only one person yes. read the book and you're one. batting a thousand. <laughs> yes. And I said, and I realized then I'm like, yes, my goal is for a million people to come back to me and say, I did this thing because I read this book and it changed my life. That is when I realized that I've done what I wanted to do. That is what will really let me know that this book has done its job and that my words have done their job. So I, I have an audacious goal. I set an audacious goal for myself and I, I'm excited to hear the stories and I'm excited to hear people just even telling me the small stuff. I don't even care if it's like I had a tough conversation with a friend that I've meant to, to, to have. I'm just looking forward to people getting this book in their hands and making, making the move because of it. It's so highly recommended. And I know our community will show up for you and good luck uh, getting this book out there because it is masterpiece and you are a complete and total gem. I'm so grateful to call you a friend. And is there anywhere else? I know people know where to buy books these days, right? If you can support yes. the local bookstore, that's the best, especially yes. again during pub week or before, if you can pre-order it, that that's the ideal. Um, but I, I don't need to tell folks where to do that. But I would love you to share a couple of coordinates on the internet if you want to steer people towards your work uh, beyond the book. Yes. Yes. So I now have, I renamed my podcast to Professional Troublemaker because I want to be in conversation with people who I see as professional troublemakers in the world. And so people can go listen to the Professional Troublemaker podcast because honestly, being a professional troublemaker, it's a book for me, it's a podcast, but it's also a life habit. It is a life habit. So I want to encourage everybody to become professional troublemakers so y'all can listen to the podcast and then I'm all over the internet. I am at lovey is my uh, handle. I have the one name handle on all the platforms. So and find that's me two V's in case you don't know if it's L-U-V-V. That's right. Two I V's and one U. L-U-V-V-I-E. And uh, Chase, I am honored that you always want to share space with me and honored that you see my work, that you spent time with it, and that you share your platform with me. It is so significant to me and I'm so grateful. 
keep doing what you're doing. I'm grateful to call you a friend and I yeah. cannot wait to see the work that this book does in the world. Uh, signing off now, you know how to follow Lovey and uh, pick up her book. And um, this is, we're at the front end of an amazing arc with your career. I know you're going to continue crushing it. So thank you again for showing up here on the show. And without further ado, I want to say uh, farewell to our folks who've tuned in. Thanks for paying attention to the show. Go track down Lovey and her work. And until next time, I bid you adieu. Well, that was an awesome show. But hey, before you go, I want you to know that I am grateful to have your ears, your attention, to have you be a part of this community. It means the world to me. Second, if you want to uh, tighten our community, our relationship, I would invite you to text me. That's right. I respond. These are my thumbs, my phone number on the other side of this. And I would love to hear from you. Let me know what you think. Um, if this is helping, hurting, what you want to see more of, less of, and otherwise just connect with yours truly personally at the following number. Are you ready? 206-309-5177. That's 206-309-5177. And those are my thumbs on the other end of that texting back. I'm able to get back to you sometimes in two minutes. Maybe other times it takes me two days, but I can't wait to hear from you and uh, start a little chit chat. So again, thanks for listening to the show. Stay tuned for another episode soon.